we don't get to choose the rule of the game, the rules of the game. Like if you're playing baseball, the rules of baseball are baseball. You can't show up to play baseball with a basketball. You will lose, right? Because the rules are fixed, right? In other words, you have to play for the game you're in. And the infinite game is the same. There are certain conditions that govern play in the infinite game. So you have to play for those conditions. You can't choose to play. I mean, you can. You can't change the rules of the game, but you do get to choose the way in which you want to play the game. And if you want to choose to play in an infinite game with a finite mindset, then you will suffer decline of trust, decline of cooperation, and decline of innovation. Have at it. Hey everyone, coming to you live from my kitchen at AKA, who's also a sponsor of this episode. Here's an honest review of one of my favorite places to stay, run by some of the best people I know, seriously. If you're someone like me who needs a place to work and live for a week or longer, I travel a lot doing these stories, you know, I would highly recommend a stay at AKA. The truth is, I can't stand renting someone else's room because it never really feels clean. At AKA, you don't have to compromise because you get the best of both worlds. The best night's sleep in a sparkling clean room, space to spread out like it's your own home, full kitchen with all the amenities and service of a luxury hotel and more, with locations in New York City, Los Angeles, London, Philadelphia, Washington DC and more, just go to stayaka.com and check them out. And when you put in the special promo code BRAND, that's B-R-A-N-D, listeners of Behind the Brand get an exclusive rate. Happy traveling. Hi, I'm Simon Sinek, optimist, author and speaker, and you're watching Behind the Brand with Brian Elliott. Hey, I'm Brian Elliott. Welcome to another edition of Behind the Brand. Today I'm here with the amazing, the incomparable Simon Sinek. Simon, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, I asked you the last couple of times you were here, how did you get this job? So I think we can move on to the next chapter. Um, tell us what's going on in your life. What's new? Well, uh, I've just finished writing The Infinite Game, um, so uh, that's exciting. Um, and. Uh, you know, there's this strange thing that happens when you invest two years of your life doing one thing is all-consuming, which is um, there's this, uh, it's, it's kind of a weird thing where you, like, don't know what to do next, <laughs> you know? Uh, and, uh, and having my weekends back and my evenings back and my social life back, I'm, all, I'm, I'm, so I'm, trying, I'm, I'm like a, a, a gazelle, that, you know, a, a newly born gazelle, and my, my legs are still wobbly, so that's kind of how I feel right now. I read the book. It's fascinating. Um, I want to talk about its origins, the inspiration, and also the evolution. Um, the Infinite Game. Break it down for us. So James Carse is a, a theologian who, uh, in 1986, wrote an amazing little book called Finite and Infinite Games. And when I read this little book, and he introduced this definition that there are these two types of games, finite games and infinite games, a finite game is defined as known players, fixed rules, and an agreed-upon objective baseball, right? We all agree who the players are. We all agree what the rules are. We all agree whoever has more points at the end of the game is the winner. There's always a beginning, a middle, and an end, right? Uh, then you have the infinite games. Infinite games are defined as known and unknown players. The rules are changeable. You can play however you want. Um, and the objective is to perpetuate the game, to stay in the game as long as possible. There may be, you may enter the game, but there's no such thing as an end to the game, right? And the more uh, I got to thinking about it, the more I started to realize that we are players in infinite games every day of our lives, every day of our lives. So there's no such thing as, um, as being first in marriage, right? You know, there's no such thing. There's no such thing as winning global politics, and there's no such thing as winning business. You know, companies come and go, but the game continues with them or without them, and there's no finish line. There's no beginning, middle, or end to business. But if you listen to the language 
of too many leaders, they talk about being number one, being the best, or beating their competition. Based on what? Based on what agreed upon timeframes, based on what agreed upon metrics. In other words, what I discovered is that when we play in an infinite game with a finite mindset, in other words, trying to win in a game that has no finish line, uh, what ends up happening is we, we actually hurt trust, we hurt cooperation, innovation declines, all of which do not serve the interests of the, the organization and eventually uh, uh, lead to its eventual demise. So what I set out to understand and write about was if we are to be these players in infinite games, if, we are to, uh, if, if business and, and, and other things are indeed infinite games, then we have to adjust our entire mindset to learn how to play for the game that we're actually in. So let's back up because I'm really curious about the evolution, how you, how you got there, mm -hmm. how you arrived at thinking about infinite games versus finite games. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you have start with why, which is all about finding your purpose. And you know, you've told me that story; it's remarkable. Um, you know, leaders eat last, that kind of thing, where it's leadership. Was this a natural next iteration, or is is this a freestanding topic? How did you arrive at you know infinite versus finite? All of my work is semi-autobiographical. Um, it's my journey, right? So Start With Why was born out of the loss of my passion for my own work. Turns out lots of people are either not passionate or have lost the passion for their own work. So I think that's one of the reasons it resonated so much. Um, uh, Leaders Eat Last was my own journey of trying to know who to trust. Um, turns out lots of people at work aren't sure either who to trust or even how to build trust. It turns out the work resonated. And it was this understanding that trust is not something, somebody's not necessarily trustworthy or untrustworthy, but it's environmental. That's what, that was the big discovery. And this book um, is, is so many of us have this uncomfortable feeling that we go, when we go to work that, th th is this really how business is supposed to work? Am I supposed to be afraid every day? Am I supposed to not really trust my boss? Is that normal? You know, should I be sort of afraid of every man for himself? Um, uh, and when we raise our hands and say, I, I don't think this is how business is supposed to work, you know, where, you know, I'm working my brains out so that two people at the top can make all the money, but I'm the one working really hard. Can I just have a little bit, you know? Um, uh, and we are told when we raise our hands and say, I don't think this whole way we're doing capitalism is right, we are told that we're naive and that we don't understand how business works. And they're rich and they have a lot of power, so I guess they're right and we're wrong, and so we go back to just feeling uncomfortable, right? So the discovery of the infinite game for me was the realization that those people who keep telling me and people like me that we're naive and don't really understand how business works, they're finite-minded. But the problem is, this is an infinite game. And they're the ones who don't actually understand how business works. And it was this remarkable sort of uh, 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 cathartic experience in the discovery of this little idea when I realized that discomfort that I and those like me have is because we're actually right. In other words, our guts are telling us that this isn't the way capitalism should work. Capitalism is infinite, which means companies should operate for the game that they're actually in as opposed to trying to force a finite-minded model on, on, on a game that is actually infinite. So that, it was because I, it was just this realization that, that the way most businesses are run is actually wrong for the way business actually works. So you weren't actually focused on business at first when you're thinking about this topic, right? I was reading about how this sort of was coming together and gelling. Um, where were you kind of focused at first before you know, it, was, it was a really business-focused topic? 
Yeah, it was it was something that wasn't the, the first time I ever presented it to a business audience was actually at a conference of entrepreneurs. It was very funny, and I was I was hired to talk about leaders eat last, um, and Seth Godin uh, spoke before me, uh, the wonderful Seth Godin, mutual friend of ours, uh, and Seth gave this just absolutely wonderful, inspiring speech all about taking risks and all about making yourself uncomfortable, and uh, I'd been tinkering with this idea of the infinite game, but. Never thought about applying it to the business context or even writing a book about it or anything or even giving a speech about it. I just, it was something that interested me. And so I walked out on the stage and I said to the audience, I was totally inspired by Seth's talk. I have this one idea that I'm playing around with. I've never really spoken about it publicly. Are you guys okay if I try something entirely new even if it has the high probability of absolute failure? And the audience cheered and they were really wonderful and supportive. And so for the first time ever, I tried talking about this concept of the infinite game as it applied to the game of business. And uh, you know, I bumbled my way through the talk and it was actually really interesting. I, I a stand-up gig, probably. Yeah, I mean, it's like improv, I guess, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it was, it, it was really interesting and fascinating and the questions were interesting. And, and I love Q&A, because Q&A, um, you know, when, when you have a body of work and you give the speech, at some point, it, it's sort of like you've done it so many times, it actually, it, it gets harder to be really present. And what I love about Q&A is it's all new for me. And so every question I get, I don't know what I'm going to get asked. Right, and it gives you context, too, about where your audience is. It's totally is. fun. And, they, and it keeps me present, and I, and I get to enjoy the, 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 the discussion with somebody else where we're working together to advance an idea. I, I love that. So I had some great Q&A that really got me thinking that maybe this is actually this is a, a, a thing. Can you think of one of those standout questions that uh, really helped you zero in on... Aha, this is that aha moment? You know, the questions that I still get now uh, uh, that make me realize that this has value is, and it goes back to that point I just made a, a second ago about coming to work and feeling like this, is, this, can't, this, this can't be right, yeah. you know? And I get a lot of these questions, which is, you know, you know, what do you do when senior management doesn't get it? What do you do when senior management literally ignores everything we're talking about here? You know, it's, the, it's, that, it's that there's a large, large, large group of people, I'd say the vast majority of people who work inside companies, are asking the question, what can I do? So many have resigned themselves to the fact of just going to work and just suffering through the model because that's what they told us. And what we're realizing is, no, this, this, the power belongs to the people. And the more we speak out and say, no, this has to change for the better. Uh, and we, we, we want to help. We want to be a part of it. Uh, we will be the leaders we wish we had. We will take it upon ourselves to, to, to practice and learn leadership. We, don't, we will not abdicate responsibility simply because we don't have formal rank, but we will serve as an example of what good leadership should, should look like for the entire company, regardless of where we stand. And this is why it's a movement. This is, this is why what we're doing is a real movement, because it's people who are speaking out and saying this Something has to be different. And we're seeing the results. We saw just, just not that long ago, the Business Roundtable came out with an announcement, uh, a letter, an open letter, that purpose should be uh, uh, a larger part of business and that shareholder supremacy uh, uh, shouldn't be the only thing that business is driven by. That's not their idea, right? And let us be crystal clear, the people who were quoted in that letter were some of the worst offenders of the old business model. I mean, Citibank. You know, one year, a few years ago, the Citibank announced the single largest, uh, 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 they set a record for the, the, the number of layoffs they had in one year. The exact same year, they had record high bonuses. 
Right. How does that happen? You know, you have Johnson & Johnson, CEO, was quoted as well, that was just fined over $500 million for their participation in the opioid crisis. In other words, you've got some really, you know, historically terrible offenders who are now all of a sudden, you know, and I, and I'm, I give them the benefit of the doubt yeah. that they've had a conversion. They're woke. You know, they're, they are woke, yes. But I would love to know what that moment was. What, what is their realization that had them sort of uh, uh, see the world a new way? Because I would like to know the event or the, 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 the rattling that they had. I would guess it's a PR meeting. I, I hope not. You know, I'll give them the benefit. If it's PR, then shame on them. Yeah. Right. But if they actually have had uh, an awakening, I would love to know what that awakening is. I know many fantastic, infinite minded, brilliant leaders, fantastic, who will look at their own histories and say, I was one of the bad guys. I was one of the ones who was driven by bottom line only. And I saw people as a line item. And yet they've had these uh, uh, moments of conversion and they can talk about what happened. There was either personal tragedy, there was some sort of personal realization, something happened that they can point to and say, I realized I had to change my ways. Um, one, of the, m one of my favorite examples is, is, is Rick Elias, um, Elias, I should say. Rick uh, runs a very successful company and he was one of those bottom line driven executives and he had a moment that forced him to challenge the way he viewed the world. He was sitting in seat 1A on that U US Airways flight that landed on the Hudson River. Mm -hmm. He was sitting there talking about how the engine stopped and it was in dead silence while they were in the air, right? Um, and he gave an amazing TED talk about his experience. Well, that converted him. He had the, uh, 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 he faced mortality and realized, I can't keep living my life this way. And now he's one of the most profound, wonderful, calm, forward-thinking, infinite-minded leaders I've ever met. He's absolutely brilliant. But he had a conversion. I want to know what the conversion was for these CEOs. Now, having said that, I think the fact that CEOs like that, from companies like that, that don't have the most stellar histories of being infinite-minded, uh, is proof that our movement is working. And we as the general population, we as the workers, we as the laborers, we are the ones who toil inside their companies. The fact that we are starting to speak out and say, no, I want to work for a company that has purpose. I want to work for a company that sees me as a human being and is investing it, invested in my growth as much as its own growth, that, that, that our words are being heard. That, that this movement is real. This is not just the, 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 the ramblings of idealists, but rather we're onto something here. And this is proof that we have to keep, uh, keep preaching and keep fighting the good fight and being the leaders we wish we had because we're having an impact. We're getting some of the largest companies in the world to see business the way we see it. And I think it's wonderful. You talk about some really uh, great stories from the book. Um, I talk about Alan Mullally and Ford and sort of that mindset of how things changed. That was a great example, I think. Mullally is an infinite-minded thinker. Uh, he was a CEO of Boeing Commercial, turned that organization around as well, and then was hired to Ford, which was losing money hand over fist. Um, and Mullally uh, did many things right. Uh, and one of the things that he really got right was this idea of understanding competition, right? And uh, com competition is a finite construction. You know, because usually we want to beat our competitors, right? We want to win. It's win or lose. Yeah. Correct. There's a winner and there's a loser, and we want to win against our competitors. And in business, we talk about our competitors all the time. Yeah. Mullally had a more infinite-minded, sophisticated way of looking at the other players in the audio industry, which is instead of seeing them as 
uh, competitors, he saw them as rivals. And some of them were worthy rivals, which meant worthy of comparison, that their strengths revealed to Mullally his and his own company's weaknesses. So when he was, um, he had a press conference when he was first brought into Ford and uh, to announce the fact that he was the new CEO. And one of the reporters asked Mullally, what car do you drive? And Mullally said, I drive a Lexus because they're the best. Now, this is the new CEO of Ford who just said, I drive a Toyota and it's the best car in the market. And he wasn't saying it as a dig to Ford. He was saying it as a way of reminding everybody that there are better things out there, which means we have room to improve. It's not about beating Toyota. It's about improving Ford, yeah. right? And when he got to Toyota, when he got to Ford, um, he drove uh, every single car that they make. He drove a different car home every single night until he, got, he went through every car that Ford makes. Because none of the other engineers had even bothered to think that way, right? They, they'd all just probably been driving Ford cars and not... Well, for, 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 well for, for, first he drove all the Fords, and then he said, get me a Toyota Corolla, which is the number one selling car in, in, in America at the time. They didn't have one. They, they, the, some of the engineers had some of the f cars that they could dismantle, but none of the senior executives, people responsible for making decisions on how to beat Toyota, had ever driven one of their competitors' cars. Yeah. Amazing. Explain that. <laughs> Explain that. Right. Yeah. So he ordered a fleet of uh, of their uh, of of cars from from the other players in the industry, and he told his executives to he he, he made no bones about it. They had to drive every single car so they could see the, where the where Ford could improve. Not about seeing who they could beat, but seeing where Ford was weaker, where where Ford could improve again. In the, in the infinite game, the whole idea of having worthy rivals, other players whose strengths reveal to us our weaknesses so that we may build on our weaknesses is what uh, the infinite game is all about. In other words, he, made, he turned around Ford not simply by tricks of accounting. He turned around Ford because they started making better cars. Is it th that easy just changing our mindset from finite to infinite? Just to s reframe the whole thing to say, uh, you know, maybe we, we get jealous or we have FOMO or... Whatever the case may be, we look at a competitor, you know, they're eating our lunch, um, and you feel those feelings of disdain or um, probably it's jealousy that more than anything just washes right over you. You know, you wish you had the sales of that competitor or you wish you had thought of that idea first or worse. Um, and I'll speak from personal experience. Uh, I launched this show in 2009, heading into 2010. And um, so I've been doing it for about a decade. And in 2015, a little NPR show called How I Built This <laughs> launched, which is the exact same show as mine, and it rocketed to success. And I just thought, perfect. <laughs> like, you know, I, I just felt, I felt a lot of uh, those feelings that you talked about in the book. Um, but then I also came to a realization that, um, I need to reframe the way I'm looking at it, that I'm really in a competition against myself. But break that down for us, for those who may still be in the struggle. Well, I mean, you sort of asked and answered it, which is there, how, we, how we frame the world is how, is how we will react to the world. But, but is it that easy just, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'll give you an example. You know, uh, the whole idea of uh, building something versus ending something. Like most of us want to wake up every day. Do you want to wake up every day to end something? 
stop something? Do you, want to, do you want to commit your whole life to stopping something? Or do you want to commit your life to building something? Okay, so the, why do we keep talking about ending poverty? Right? <laughs> we have to end poverty. Or maybe we have to commit ourselves to ensuring that every single human being on this planet can make uh, uh, a livable wage. That's a pursuit of building. Right? We have to reduce unemployment. You want to wake up to reduce something every day? How about we have to increase employment? Right? Uh, we have to, we have to, uh, uh, we have to get people off drugs. How about we need to get people sober? Right? Like, it's way more powerful to, to build something and do something affirmative than to try and beat something or stop something or be against something. Yes. Right? And so, in, in two seconds, we've just completely reframed something from something that feels like, uh, to something that feels like, ah, right? So yes, a large part of it is, is mindset. A large part of it is, is re-understanding and reframing the world, right? So, you know, there's this wonderful Chinese story, Chinese proverb of sorts. There's many versions of it, but here's the one I know. Um, there's a young man who is born with remarkable talent for horse riding. And everyone in the village says, he, he's so lucky. And the monk says, we'll see. And he falls off the horse one day, breaks his leg, just ends his career, and everyone in the village says, oh, he's so unlucky. And the monk says, we'll see. And then war breaks out, and all the young men are sent to battle, except he can't go because of his busted leg. And everybody in the village says, oh, he's so lucky. And the monk says, we'll see. Good luck, bad luck, who knows? And that's the point, to understand, to reframe things, that they're not individual events, but rather they're moments on a continuum. You know, when I went, my discovery of the, of the concept of why came from a really dark period in my life. Do I ever want to relive that? No. Am I glad it happened? Yes. Now, in the moment, I felt like a failure. I felt like the, the end, you know, it was awful. Was it bad? I don't know. It's completely changed my life. It's completely given me a whole new lease. It's given me a whole new career. Perhaps it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. Right. So, this is what it means for mindset, which is do we have the ability to see the lessons in the struggles as we're going through the struggles and not wait for 2020 hindsight and not start congratulating ourselves and patting ourselves on the back so vigorously when things go right, but also not think that the, the world, is, the sky is falling when things go, go, go wrong, right? But rather to just temper our excitement and our, and our negative reactions to all the events, you know, we're not heroes when something goes right. That was good. That, that's good. Let's, let's figure out how that happened and try to repeat that and learn the lessons. Instead of seeing things as right or wrong or good or bad, see them as right decisions and lessons. Yeah, you're right. Um, and it takes practice. I don't mean to, yeah. to make it sound easier than it is, but the, the, the mindset component of it is literally a decision. I choose to see the world this way versus that way. And the practice is staying in that, staying in that. I think you're spot on. I mean, uh, and you're also right. It is a lot easier said than done, especially when you're in the moment. But you're absolutely right. And that's why we have friends. And that's why we have friends, because none of us is objective. Because as you said before with your own experience, we have feelings. We have ego, and we have stress, and we have insecurities, and we have ambitions, and we have all these things all mixed up that make us messy and make us human. And so this is the value of deep, meaningful relationships, that there are people there to say, well, this sucks, and just help us like, validate the fact that it's okay to feel bad. Yeah. Or to say, I gotcha, we're here, we're go through this together, and make us feel that this is not the end. But if we attempt to go through this thing called life by ourselves, it's just too difficult. It's just too overwhelming. And that's the irony, isn't it? At least I can speak from personal experience. When I'm going through a hard time, 
I just go inside. And my instinct, and my, my instinct is just to kind of go into a shell, hunker down, and it's the absolute opposite of what I need to do. I need to be you know, out and about. I need to be talking with friends. Right. Take, it takes courage. Well, I tend to isolate. Yes. It takes tremendous courage in times of pain to call someone up and say, I need help. And the irony is we don't build trust with people by offering help. We build trust by asking for it. It's Brene Brown's work, right? Um, uh, and so how many of us, we offer help all the time, but how many of us have the courage to ask for it when we really need it? And I don't mean like, can you help me get this done? I mean like real, like I'm stuck. Yeah. You know, I don't know, how, I, I've run, I, I'm not smart enough. Like I, don't, I literally don't understand what I'm being asked to do. I'm not talented enough, or I don't have the skill set, or I've been promoted into a position where I can't do this. And to simply say, I need help. And it's amazing. We're actually surrounded by people who want to help us, but they don't help us because we all are acting so brave that we have all the answers every day. We're fronting. We're fronting every day, lying, hiding, and faking, that uh, people don't help us because they don't think we need it. So it's an, it's an incredibly amazing thing. I have a dear friend, uh, and uh, he, I, 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 was, I wanted to thank him. He, he was really helpful to me. And I, I said to him, we were, we, were, we were walking somewhere, I don't remember where we were. And I said to him, you know, I wanted to say, you're the kind of friend, I said to him, that when the chips are down, I would call you. And he turned to me and said, I'd be mad if you didn't. And in other words, it's tremendously rewarding when our friends ask us for help because it's tremendously rewarding to help people we love and care about. And I feel the same way about him. I'd be very mad if he didn't call me in a time of need, you know, because I will be there for him. And that's very interesting in terms of relationship dynamics. Uh, and maybe that sort of friendship translates into, you know, a longer term partner, spouse, whatever. What do you think are some of the most important characteristics, traits of people who will stay best friends or maybe, you know, they end up in a, a, a romantic relationship or marriage? You know, what, what are some of the keys to that success? I think all relationships, romantic relationships, personal relationships, or business relationships, are acts of service. You have to view the relationship as an act of service, that I'm here to actually serve my friend, spouse, partner mm -hmm. in some way, shape, or form. Um, and I think too many of us show up with a taking mentality rather than a giving mentality. You know, what, what, what have they done for me lately? What are they going to do for me? Sitting back and taking notes. Keeping score. Keeping score, right? And, you know, relationships aren't equal. They're equitable. There's a difference. Equal means I do the dishes, you do the dishes. I cook, you cook. I put the kids to bed, you put the kids to bed. That's an equal relationship. We both do the same things. Right. An equitable relationship is I'll do the cooking if you do the cleaning. You put the kids to bed, I'll take out the garbage. We're not doing the same things, but everybody feels that it's fair, that we're both contributing, but it's not equal, it's equitable. Right? And I think all relationships are like that. Friendships, uh, uh, marriages, uh, business partnerships must be equitable. We must both be contributing something that makes the other feel they have the better half of the deal. Because I'm happy to do X, they're happy to do Y. This is a great relationship because they want to do the things that I don't want to do or can't do. Yeah. For a world, so then for a world that's swiping left or right, how does, and I just want to dig a little bit deeper on the relationships. I'm in a very happy relationship, by the way, and I feel very fortunate about that because that is our relationship, very equitable. Um, although I sometimes feel like I'm getting the better end of the deal most of the time. Um, but for those who are swiping left and right, how, what are some of the signals? Like how, how can you communicate or um, show people 
what you bring to the table. Because if, if it is a service mentality, then the trick is to sort of convince or uh, inform the other person of what you bring to the relationship. You know, if if you if you want the app to reveal those things, good luck finding that. Okay, the app does not reveal that. Right. The app is the digital equivalent of the glance across the bar. Right. You know, the app is the digital equivalent of bumping into somebody in a museum and sort of there's a little spark and you yeah. trade phone numbers. Well, it's biology at first. You right? know, it's like, ooh, okay. You know, that's all it is. Yeah. It's 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 a it's a modern uh, uh, way that makes an introduction that you don't actually have to have the awkwardness of going up to somebody and the fear of failure and being rejected. And we've disposed of all of those things that are actually important skills to learn, but that's a different conversation. Uh, but, the, this, the, but whether somebody is, is able to produce, help produce an equitable relationship, it's called dating. It's called getting to know someone. There's no, there's no technology that can expedite that process. There's no hack. There's no hack, right? It's good old-fashioned getting to know someone and taking risks and revealing things about yourself and being afraid and hoping they throw a bone and and it's it's a dance of of of, of expressing yourself and if they express themselves you know but you haven't yet you're creating an imbalance and maybe you go a little too far and then you create an awkward moment and then you have to pull back and it's a dance and sometimes it's uncomfortable and sometimes you step on each other's feet but at some point you'll either learn that you can dance together or you can't dance together eventually you stop stepping on each other's feet or you don't and you find a new dancing partner or you decide you want to dance with this person for the rest of your life but it's a process and for some it's quicker and for some it's slower there's no right amount of time it should take I know that you can't find love in in a date I know you cannot right you can find lust but you cannot find love in a date but if you've been trying this dance for four or five years and you're still not sure if you want to spend the rest of your life with them, eh, probably it's time to move on. It's somewhere in between a week and seven years. <laughs> I don't know exactly where. Right. You know, and it's a process. Um, some people choose the strategy of wanting to get to know the person before they commit to anything, and some people commit to something and get to know them in the relationship. Who are we to judge? There's no right or wrong. You've talked about technology before. Are you? St- Lots of toys. Yeah, I mean, where where are you right now, um, heading into 2020, on the, the use of technology? We talked, you know, years ago actually about you know how important it is to leave your phone put away, mm. not on the dinner table. Even if you have your phone on the table, mm. it sends a signal that the person sitting across from you is less important than who might call. Mm. I remember that very clearly. Um, what's changed about your take on technology? Are you, are you more analog, low-tech? Are you um, recommending that people use technology less? What, weigh in on that a little bit. No, 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 no. Understanding the limitations of technology as it relates to creating human relationships. The alternative is not a Luddite, you know? The alternative is not, you know, I think I'll be Amish now, you know? Right. It, it's, a, it's about balance. It's, it's what it is. Is, is, you know, drinking is fun. Too much alcohol, not good. You know, gambling, oh my God, so much fun to go to Vegas. But if you're gambling away your kid's college education fund, probably a little too far, right? It's like anything, it's fun, it's about balance. You know, texting is great. But if that's the only way that you connect with a human being, then, then deep, meaningful relationships are much harder to find. You know, um, uh, if, if you have your phone, your nose in your phone every time you're with your friends, 
Sure, it's great to connect with. You know, Facebook and social media are great to connect with people around the world, but if that's the only way in which you manage all your relationships, or if it's unbalanced, if you're attached to your phone all the time when you're in the company of real people, then you're gonna struggle to form those kinds of deep, trusting, loving relationships that, that we all desire. So it's not a question of right or wrong, on or off, good or bad, you know, I reject my cell phone. Mm -hmm. It's about finding the right balance. Yeah. Um, and yes, I, 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 my life is different now since I've learned so much more about the addictive qualities of, of cell phones. My phone is permanently in black and white because I know the bright colors of phones, much like with children, addict us and attract us to keep reusing it. My friend has an 18-month-old. Wait, so you don't have a smartphone, you have a flip phone? No, no, I have saying? a smartphone. Okay. It's in black and white, though. Okay. I've turned the phone onto black and white. Wow, okay, cool. Uh, I have a friend who's an 18-month-old, uh, and the kid just is addicted to the phone. The, the kid keeps reaching for the phone and playing with the phone. My friend put it in black and white mode. The kid picked up the phone and put it back down. Hmm. Well, we're all like that. So I do things like that. When I go out for dinner with my friends, I put my phone in airplane mode, nothing's coming in, and I give my phone to my friend. If, I'm, if my friend puts their phone on the table when we're out, I take the phone and put it on the chair next to me. <laughs> so I, I, I have restricted my access to my own devices. I put them in airplane mode so I don't have that anticipation. If I'm in a meeting, airplane mode and in my bag. Um, and it, because I found a better balance. Yeah. Do I use my phone on the subway when I'm going? Of course, I like playing Scrabble on the subway as much as anybody. Yeah, well, let's frame it for leadership too. So, so what is your recommended protocol if you're the leader? Um, should you leave your phone, you know, in your office? Or? There should be zero phones in conference rooms ever, yeah. ever. You'll find that meetings go better; they're shorter, and the quality of the meetings is higher. Uh, um, yeah, there should be. There should never be a cell phone in a conference room. And it's not about waiting outside, texting, and then coming in, putting the phones away. Don't leave it in your office. Um, there's one company I know that when I, I, I gave my big diatribe about the dangers of phones in conference rooms, they put cubbies outside all the conference rooms. And before you go into the meeting, you put your phone in the cubby. And um, they were really aggressive in pointing out the leaders who brought their phones not, not the rank and file, but when leaders brought their phones into the meetings, they really singled them out <laughs> uh, 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 because the, the leaders should be setting an example. Yeah. They're not more important, so they just get to break the rules. It's about relationships, and we want our leaders to uh, do things that make us feel like we matter to them. And one of those things is just leaving your cell phone outside the conference room. You talked in the book about competitors versus rivals on a personal basis. Um, tell me how you got through that experience. Because you know, if we're not careful, that's something that can start to eat away at us, that could actually be more corrosive and bring us down versus you know, the opposite. Talk about that. So uh, I was at an event. Uh, or as, as you said, there was someone I spoke with who I'm in the same industry as. Um, he writes books, he gives speeches, he's very, very good at what he does. He's well respected and I respect his work as well. Um, and I hate him, I have an irrational hatred of him. Um, and as a result of my irrational hatred of him, I'm extremely competitive with him. Because he eats your lunch. You know, he just like, I, you know, he... Better numbers, better book sales. Who knows? Like I better will, looking. I will regularly, let's not go too far. Like <laughs> I will regularly compare my book sales with his online. And if my numbers are higher, I'm all smug. And if his numbers are higher, I sort of get angry. And if people bring up his name, 
somewhere. I sort of, you know, sort of like seed underneath. I'm like, yeah, he's a great guy, you know? Uh, but I don't know where it comes from. It's totally irrational. He's always been very nice to me whenever I've seen him publicly. Anyway, we were invited to speak on the same stage together. Uh, we would be interviewed. And the interviewer thought it would be fun if we uh, introduced each other. And so I went first, and I turned to him and I said, um, you make me extremely uncomfortable. You make me really insecure because all of your strengths are all of my weaknesses. And whenever your name comes up, it makes me, it makes me cringe. Okay, so time out. That is a very gutsy move to just throw down, be vulnerable like that. Yeah. Why did you decide to go that route versus continue to front and pretend? Well, because people can tell, can't they? It would have, whatever I would have said would have been disingenuous and people can tell. <laughs> Really? Okay. I mean... I'm not that good an actor. Okay. Uh, I mean, I think that's an extraordinary... Or it would have sounded generic. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I'd like to introduce him. He's a New York Times best-selling author. Uh, his, world, his work is, well, you know... Clap it up. Yeah. You know, it's... <laughs> do you want to be introduced that way? It sounds horrible. You know, we all want to be introduced personally, but I didn't have anything nice to say personally. Yeah. So I just said the truth. What extraordinary... But the, here's the best part, is he turned around and he said funny I feel the same about you we had the feeling about each other because the reality was our strengths are opposites and our strengths reveal to each other our weaknesses and so the insecurity I didn't actually have hatred for him it's that because he made me uncomfortable because he he acts like a mirror to me it's much easier to take all of that negative energy and direct it against someone than it is to take a hard look at myself and say what work do I have to do um, we, this is not unique to me Look at politics, the anger and vitriol, rather than, you know, at each, at each other as opposed to saying, where can we do better? Well, I just think that reaction is extraordinary and rare, amazing. Did you get that clarity in that moment or did, did it come to you beforehand and you thought this no, is what no, I'm going to do? No, it was all in the moment. It was, I didn't know what to expect. I just felt it was the right thing to do, to be totally honest and candid. And... Uh, uh, and it was very cathartic. Um, um, from, that, from that day on, first of all, I've stopped comparing our book rankings because who cares? Turns out people can buy more than one book. Um, and he and I become close friends. I stayed at his house. We help each other all the time. Like, like he's, he's become a really good friend and partner. So let's go back a little bit and, and really unpack the how to do this because I think it's so important. I mean... It would have saved me so much heartache. Uh, I remember... It's mindset again. It is mindset. Um, but it even takes me back to one of the very first episodes I did on this show with uh, actor Rain Wilson from The Office. He was Dwight. And I asked Dwight, I asked Rain, it's hard not to call him Dwight, I asked him, um, now that you've made it, looking back, was there, is there anyone that you've sort of been holding a grudge against to either kept you under their thumb or didn't give you that big shot and now you're like see you know I had had what it takes and, and he said something very profound I've never forgotten he said um, holding a grudge is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die mm. so what's the point mm. and it blew me away mm. and, and so in a way this thinking more infinitely reminds me of the same kind of thing well, it's, being, it's being focused on the work that and the cause you're trying to advance rather than worrying about what everybody else is doing. You know, you can, take, you, can take, you can take account of what others are doing so that you can learn more about yourself, but it's not, it's not trying to take account of others so that you can beat them, you know? It's, uh, it's about outdoing yourself. 
Well, and I'm totally on board with it, but I'm also thinking about the other side of the coin, which is the rest of the world mm. is measuring you by vanity metrics. You know, number of subscribers, number of books mm -hmm. sold, um, you know, how many views did this video get? Mm -hmm. And they assign it a value. Mm -hmm. uh, and it turns out that's a terrible way to measure value. It's a way to measure value. I don't think it's terrible. I think it's unbalanced. You know, there's, there's, you know, if somebody produces a piece of work that is of high value, that has, you know, when Eckhart Tolle wrote his book, you know, a lot of people bought it and he made a lot of money. There's nothing wrong with that. It's because he, he produced something that's really, really valuable, right? So. This, the, the, the metrics are just unbalanced because it's not the only thing that matters, you know? Um, resources are not the only thing that matters. Will also matters. Like, what does it actually do to how does it make us feel also matters. Right. So, so the, the traditional metrics that we have are not wrong. They're just lopsided. You know, is somebody a high-value person in our company because they make a lot of sales? I mean, with one metric, yeah, but they're toxic geniuses and they're destroying everybody else's uh, uh, performance, and they would stab you in the back so they can make the sale. Well, how good is that for the future and longevity of the company? Right. There, there's more than one metric. It's not just their performance, but it's also their team. How, how good a team player are they? And we, we, we over-index on performance and, and, and don't give enough to whether they're valuable team members. So I think we need to, we need to recalibrate is my point. It's not that the traditional metrics are, are wrong, it's that they're, they're unbalanced. And how do we recalibrate? Well, we have to start paying attention to things like teamwork, trustworthiness, you know? Um, we, don't, we don't evaluate those things at all. You know, we promote somebody because, they're, they're, because they reached a goal, they, reached an, they hit an arbitrary number and an arbitrary date, promote that person. And yet there's somebody else in the company who, who's such a, who's always there to support anybody who needs it and gets higher performance out of everybody else on the team, and yet we completely ignore that person because they may be the most gifted natural leader, but they may not be the most gifted, may not be the uh, best individual performer. Yeah. But their team is the highest performing team because of them. So we completely ignore those people in, in, in the reward and, and promotion structure. How about this scenario? Um, you decide to take a page from your playbook. That person shows some vulnerability, talks about how they're feeling in that moment, and the other person does not reciprocate. You know, they sort of use that against them. I can see, I can think of circumstances where someone might say something else instead of, oh, I felt the same way about you. What do you do in that scenario? Well, I mean, this is, a, uh, this is a messy human game. You know, being vulnerable doesn't mean you do it every day, all the time, to every person, right? Uh, uh, it's about assessing risk and knowing when and how and who. Um, and if there are repercussions, then, then that's part of the journey, too, you know? Um, uh, but it would be foolhardy to take a risk like that to somebody who you know is a serial politician and who's climbed the daggers in your back to to make it to where they are today. Right, you're not going to go like, in. Like, yeah, I wouldn't. I would recommend strongly finding somebody else to experiment with your vulnerability. <laughs> uh, well so, said. You know, uh, it's not about. It's not about. A, it's not foolhardy. Being vulnerable is not foolhardy. Fool, being vulnerable is it's very risky. Right. You know, even in a personal relationship, it's hugely risky. Just fear of humiliation. Fear of embarrassment, fear of being rejected. You know, it's this huge amount of risk that goes with being vulnerable. So you have to assess the risk. And that's why we call it risk, because you have to weigh the risk and be like, I'm going to do this. But if you never do it for fear of being 
humiliated or embarrassed, if you, never, if you go through your entire life never taking that risk, then, then you will struggle to form deep, meaningful relationships personally or professionally. You're living small. Yeah, and it drives me nuts when people say, well, there's no, there's no place for emotions at work. Work is about rational, it is about performance, and there's no place for emotions at work, right? Well, if you've ever had any kind of happiness, sadness, anger, you know, insecurity, if you've ever made a decision out of fear, oh, I better do this, it's the wrong thing to do, but you know, I don't want to get in trouble. Well, congratulations, we have emotions at work. Yeah. You know, uh, there's another Alan Mulally story that I absolutely love, where when Mulally came into this company that is losing money hand over fist and failing, Ford, he goes into his senior most executives, they have these, these business review meetings every, every uh, week, where the executives are supposed to show red, yellow, green how well their divisions are doing, and every single slide that Mulally has shown is green. And Mulally says to them, guys, our company is losing money hand over fist, and you're telling me everything's great? Do you want to try again? The next week they come back in, and everything's green. You know, and it took one guy who changed one slide to red before they could get a clear sense of what's going on in the company. And the reason all of these executives kept showing green is because the previous CEO would have yelled at them and fired them if they presented the truth. So if you tell me there's no place for emotion at work, these are the most senior people at a major international corporation who are making decisions about what information to present to the CEO because of their emotions. <laughs> so there's no such thing as disconnecting emotions from work because there's no such thing as disconnecting emotions from human beings. I've always felt that way. I've always wanted to flip the script on that saying it's not personal, it's just business. I always think it's, all it, personal. it's not business, it's just personal. Yeah. It's the way it should be. Yeah, business is always personal. It is. You know, it's uh, because sometimes we're offended by the price that we're offered. Well, it's, then how can it? But it's, but it's not personal. Of course it's personal, you know? Um, you know, anybody who's ever bought a house or an apartment, you know, you make an offer, they're offended by the offer. <laughs> I, thought you just, I thought you were trying to sell a house. Of course it's personal. Yeah. And it's hard for us. Sometimes we don't, want to, we don't want to be emotionally invested in the things. We don't want to fall in love with the house before we, you know, before we paid for it, you know? It's hard to disconnect our emotions from the transaction sometimes. Absolutely. I mean, I, th I think probably everyone feels that way about their work, you know? Uh, everyone tries to sandbag you, uh, you know, you make a proposal and you say, this is what it's going to cost. You've got to be out of your mind. You're crazy. You know, almost they feel insulted because you... They don't call back because of the sticker shock as opposed to just calling up and negotiating. Of course, it's, of co it's all emotional. Right. So to say that it's not emotional is just funny or that there's no place for emotion at work is just, then there's no place for emotion in human beings because last I checked, the people who run business are human beings. Were there times when you struggled with the infinite and the finite, you know, trying to figure out, I'm sure you had difficulties writing this book. Writing a book, I would assume, um, is, is not an easy process. Were there times that you battled with demons of infinite and finite thinking? Of course. If a book is easy to write, it's a bad book. You know, I've had people come up to me, I wrote a book, it's so easy, I wrote it in six weeks. I'm like, that's a, that's a shitty book, you know? <laughs> um, I think things that are, have value are difficult. Relationships that have value are hard. You know, the best relationships will always, the people will tell you, it's work. You know, you have to work at it, yeah. you know? Raising kids, it's hard work. You know, it's not easy. Um, things that have value tend to tend to have, tend to be a hard work because we're trying to we're trying to solve hard problems. I mean, and when I write a book, you know, I, I'm tackling a problem that is personally difficult, and then I have the added complication of having to write it down in a way that is understandable to others. They actually can understand what I'm trying to th what I'm thinking, and make it that you actually want to keep reading. 
Like it might be perfectly accurate and compelling, it's just boring as heck. Mm -hmm. So like there's so many things that go into writing a book of which the physical writing is the least of it. Organizing ideas, is there enough to write here for an entire book? Most business books are probably good enough to be articles. And you, you can feel it when you're reading. You're like, oh, there's no big idea here. I'm just reading the same thing over and over again with different examples. The editor's gone like this. Ooh, you know? And so you know, I, 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 I refuse to write a book unless I know that I have something that has, has enough depth to it that there's 250 pages worth of information. Otherwise, I'll just go write an article, um, which is sometimes what I end up doing. I, I do have ideas that people say, you should write a book. I'm like, it's not, it's not really a book idea. It's an article idea. Well, I loved the book and I was inspired by it, but if you could give me sort of a logline approach to what people should pull out of this or what the value is. I mean, it sounds like we've been talking a lot about back to basics, that we shouldn't run away from things that are difficult, that we should embrace them, that we should really have more long-term thinking, not binary, you know, you won today, you lost today. But w what is the core message? Uh, that we have to play for the game we're in. You know, you, we don't get to choose the, rule of the, game, the rules of the game. Like if you're playing baseball, the rules of baseball are baseball. You can't show up to play baseball with a basketball. You will lose, right? Because the rules are fixed, right? In other words, you have to play for the game you're in. And the infinite game is the same. There are certain conditions that govern play in the infinite game. So you have to play for those conditions. You can't choose to play. I mean, you can. The, you can't change the rules of the game, but you do get to choose the way in which you want to play the game. And if you want to choose to play an in, in an infinite game with a finite mindset, then you will suffer decline of trust, decline of cooperation, and decline of innovation. Have at it, right? You may have some short-term success, but it'll come at the liability of sometimes your own joy, uh, uh, your own lasting success and the longevity of the organization itself. So I think the, 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 core, the core message in this book is, is actually re-understanding how the, how the business world, how the world actually works. Because I think too many of us actually have, and I certainly did, a wrong, a misunderstanding. We overuse sports analogies in business, for example, you know, as if it's all about winning and losing. You know? And it's not, not even close. There's actually no such thing as winning and losing in business because nobody can win business. You know, and if you go bankrupt, have you lost? Well, the business fell out of the game, but those people don't stop. They go start new businesses, and sometimes the second one or the third one is super successful. Yeah. Did they lose? Not, Not really. So why do we do that to ourselves? Because the finite game is easier. We're, we're tangibly driven animals, and metrics are easier to count. They're easier to see. And we love the thrill of the win. We love to hit a number and feel the sense of success. And the infinite game is not the absence of finite games. Of course there's finite games. Of course it's, uh, you have to have goals, you have to have targets. Of course, but to what end? The infinite game is the context within which all the finite games exist. And absent that contest, absent that context, all we have is a series of infinite games as if we're running in a rat race you know, every day of our lives because there, Every goal you hit, you have to hit the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and the next one. And eventually it gets very tiring. And eventually we wake up one morning and we say, what's it all for? And that's what the infinite game explains. What's it all for?